Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So welcome back to series four of Bolus. This is the first episode of the fourth series. And we've got Beth Payne back after doing an episode. Actually, she's done two episodes. It's the third now. Diamond, yeah. Black Fan Anemia and also... MDS. MDS, yeah. So this episode is going to be on hematopoiesis. So we go into a bit more detail about what happens in the bone marrow to create blood cells. And we also talk a bit about MDS. And also coming up in this series, we have an episode on CMV with Kirsty Thompson, our clinical lead for hematology here, and an episode on transfusions with Malika Sakar. And then after that, we have John Lambert talking about essential thrombocythemia and polycythemia vera, and Vanya Gantz coming back to talk about antimicrobial resistance, and many more interesting episodes to follow. So uh, Beth, thanks for joining us again. And we're going to do this episode on the kind of the basics of hematopoiesis. So we thought we'd get you along to answer some of our questions. So I guess the first one would be, what is it? Hematopoiesis is a term that basically refers to the production of all our mature blood cells in our body. Usually the dogma is that this occurs from a hematopoietic stem cell. So that's a blood stem cell that is able to give rise to all of the other blood cells that we have in our body. And stem cells is a term that we hear often, and it basically refers to a cell that has a very specialized capacity, which is that it can divide and produce a copy that's identical of itself, or it can divide and give a cell that's going to go on and become other different types of cells. So that's called asymmetrical division. Stem cells can also divide to make two stem cells. They can also divide to make two cells that will go on to produce progeny that are more specialised cells. So by that I mean it can divide and make cells that will go on to be myeloid cells that will help us fight infection, or red blood cells that will help to carry our oxygen around our body, or platelets that will help us to make our blood clot. Is there a lifespan to sort of stem cells or are they yeah, able so to that, sort of infinitely carry on this replication? Yes. So the idea of a stem cell is that it is with you essentially for life. That's not entirely true. We know that if we look for stem cells in older, usually animal studies, these are taking place in, that we can still see stem cells as the animal gets older, but the function of those stem cells isn't quite as good as it used to be. So they get tired and they get exhausted. But that's an important thing about stem cells is that what we get when we're born is essentially what we've got for the rest of our lives. And all of the cells that come from a stem cell have a finite lifespan. So once the, cell has, the stem cell has divided and decided to become a myeloid cell or a red blood cell or a platelet, that cell is destined to die once it's finished its job doing those things. Whereas a stem cell is there forever to replenish the supply whenever it's needed. And because of that, it's rather protected from the things that cause our cells to die. So stem cells live in the bone marrow and they are kind of in a little niche within the bony trabeculae. And they're relatively deprived of oxygen in that region. And that allows them to essentially be napping. They're most of the time 
what we call quiescent in a scientific terms and that basically just means they're doing absolutely nothing they're very quiet and they only wake up when they're needed whereas the other cells in our body the more committed cells that are going to make blood cells on a regular basis those cells are cycling so they're dividing regularly and they're producing cells as needed and stem cells really only wake up when a replenishment is required to that next pool of cells. And so that can just be something that just happens periodically, but it could also be at times of stress. Or it's like it's often at times or... of stress. And we actually don't know a vast amount about what the triggers are to change, to make a stem cell divide. There's quite a lot of information about how it happens under stress, but how it happens in a normal situation is a little bit more difficult to understand. And historically, we've thought of a situation where when you need a white blood cell, a stem cell divides and makes a white blood cell. But actually, it's much more that the stem cell is quiet doing nothing. And there's a pool of cells that are a little bit more committed than that, that, are, okay. that know they're going to be myeloid cells, and they give rise to most of what you need. The stem cell really doesn't divide very frequently right. and needs okay. a stimulus to be able to do that. When we talk about where the bone marrow is, I mean, where does blood production happen then? So blood production happens in the bit of the bone which is liquid. So that's predominantly in the long bones and in the pelvis. So blood cell development is designed to do different things when you're developing. So when you're very young, what you basically need as an embryo is oxygen. So you just make red blood cells. And as the organism develops, you start to make all of the blood cells that you need for life. And in embryos, that actually happens in the liver. So the fetal liver is the first site of production of blood. And it's kind of important to know that mostly for how that goes wrong, because some of the blood cells that we produce during very early life can go wrong even in the womb. And if you look at children who develop leukemias, often you can find those abnormal blood cells in the womb. So in the blood when the baby is born, you can find the abnormality that leads to leukemia when the child is five or six or seven or even 10 or, or older than that. So childhood leukemias have a propensity to be something that has arisen during abnormal blood development in the womb. Because you kind of think of an acute disorder like that as something that maybe just kind of comes on suddenly. very quickly, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, so what we know, the most common type of childhood leukemia results as a fusion of two proteins that occurs presumably in some sort of childhood stem cell. And about one in a hundred children are born with that fusion present in their blood, oh, right. okay. which is very high. A very small fraction of those children will then go on to get leukemia, and most of them will get rid of those cells by normal and natural processes. Those cells will peter out and die. We kind of know that because adults don't get that kind of leukemia. So those cells don't continue to propagate into adulthood because we don't have adult patients that have that sort of leukemia. So we think that those cells that are there that are abnormal and occur in the womb require additional abnormal events to happen. And those abnormal events may occur as a result of infections or lack of infections during childhood development. We know that children that go to nursery and are exposed to lots of bacteria and pathogens and normal childhood infections are actually less likely to get leukemia than children that don't do that. So there may be a component of that, but it's not very well understood.
In later life, with the effects of aging and its effects on the sort of stem cell, what does what does hematopoiesis look like? Yeah, so in the last five years or so, we've learned quite a lot about what happens over the, our lifespan and the genetic events that occur in stem cells that predispose us to get blood cancers. In particular, there are a group of genes that are seen commonly in blood cancers that are also mutated in people who have absolutely normal blood counts. And that increases as patients get older. And that's been termed clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential or age-related clonal hematopoiesis. And the presence of these mutations, and I'm talking about patients who have a normal blood count and no blood cancer or evidence of blood cancer, having one of those mutations in their blood stem cells increases the risk of having blood cancer by between 10 and 50 fold, depending on how many of the cells are affected. But its absolute risk is still extremely low. So what we don't know is what are the factors that change your risk once you've got one of those mutations in one of your stem cells. The likelihood is, is that having a mutation in one of those genes makes your stem cells more resilient or more likely to survive over many, many years. And very, very slowly, they sort of take over the population of normal stem cells because they have a slight advantage. But it's nothing striking. It's something that's very subtle. And therefore, over time, they probably take up more of the pool of cells that are there. And therefore, they're more likely to get a second hit mutation that will then drive progression of that to hematological cancer. So that's the focus of a lot of ongoing study, because at the moment, finding those mutations doesn't really help us because we don't have anything that we can do about that. And in fact, a lot of our older patients who have leukaemia and have had treatment for their leukaemias, or even stem cell transplants, and are effectively what we would have called cured, we sometimes find that those mutations are still there. And we don't really know how to interpret that. Some studies have suggested that having that mutation there is no different to being normal, never having had leukaemia and finding one of those mutations. So it increases your risk, but no more so than previously. But some other studies have suggested that it would increase your risk of having a relapse, for example, if you had a transplant. What do we think the effect of treated with chemotherapy has on the sort of the function, the bone marrow's ability to make blood cells? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, we know just from a very sort of basic level and being in the ward that patients who've had prior therapy, chemotherapy, in the sort of conventional sense, have less reserve in their bone marrow. And particularly, we see that, for example, if patients are recovering from their chemotherapy and they're still very much predisposed to having blood counts drop if they get an infection, Sometimes we see that several months after treatment and we'll be worried that the patient's relapsing and actually they've just got a bit of an infection and their bone marrow can't cope. It doesn't have the level of reserve that it used to have. And certain chemotherapy drugs, not necessarily as a result of the bone marrow toxicity, but but we know that we can only give a certain amount in someone's lifetime because the longer term risks of toxicity are greater. I guess the other thing to say is that all chemotherapy drugs are largely DNA damaging. So they all carry a risk of increasing the damage to our blood stem cells and the risk of secondary cancers. And 
a significant fraction of the patients that I see with myelodysplastic syndromes have had prior therapy, either with chemotherapy or radiotherapy for other blood cancers or solid malignancies. And those patients usually have complex genetics or very characteristic genetics that make the outcome of their disease worse because they've had prior insults from chemotherapy or radiotherapy. Does that change when some of the malignancies are diagnosed? If someone has an acute leukemia, they, do they become more active or is it just some of the, the progenitor cells that the, yeah. where this sort of replication happens? We have this idea that when a patient presents with leukemia, that all of the blast cells, all of the leukemia cells, carry the abnormalities that are akin to that leukemia. Now, we know that there are many subgroups of cells within a leukemia that may have different genetic abnormalities. But when a patient arrives and their bone marrow is full of leukemia, usually we can see that virtually every cell that we look at carries mutations that are in keeping with that leukemia. However, we give them chemotherapy and normal cells come back. So the normal cells must be there. There must still be something. Otherwise, what would come back would be leukemia yeah. by definition. So is it just the overproliferation of the, the cancerous ones and then you don't see many of the you presumably still healthy no, ones still there? Yeah, you yeah. see virtually no normal ones. And I think a good example of this is from myelodysplastic syndromes where historically patients who had cytogenetic abnormalities, so that's chromosomal abnormalities, which we can detect uh, in about 20% of patients who have myelodysplastic syndrome will have a chromosomal abnormality. But it would not be uncommon, say, for example, to a for a patient to have six out of 10 cells that carried a cytogenetic abnormality and for the bone marrow to have many features of the normal bone marrow. And the interpretation of that historically was that only 60% of the bone marrow carried myelodysplastic syndrome and the other 40% was normal. But that's not the case. If you look much more deeply doing whole exome sequencing or even more targeted sequencing, you find that most of the cells, if not all of the cells that you look at, even although they down the microscope look quite normal, actually do carry those mutations. So somewhere there must be some napping stem cells that are suppressed that don't carry the abnormalities. That being said, it's virtually impossible to cure a patient, cure a patient of myelodysplastic syndrome at older age without a transplant, and that's probably because there are very, very few normal, if any, stem cells. They probably all carry at least one genetic abnormality that's predisposing them to MDS. And that's why transplant is really still the only cure that we have, despite improvements in therapies. Can we talk a little bit about some of the terminology here being mm -hmm. used in regards to sort of hematopoiesis, so differentiation? Yeah, so differentiation refers to the movement of a cell from being uncommitted, as in a cell that can give rise to any other type of cell, to being committed. Uh, so that basically means once the stem cell, which can be anything, divides, it decides whether it's going to be a red blood cell or a white blood cell or a lymphoid cell. And before it gets to the point of being a red blood cell or a white blood cell or a platelet or a lymphoid cell, there's a process by which it sort of subdivides. So it, at first of all, it will say, 
okay, well, I'm going to be either a red cell or a white cell. Or I could say, okay, I'm going to be either a white cell or a lymphoid cell. And gradually, cells become more committed to becoming what their final destination is. And that's very tightly controlled in the bone marrow by you know, lots of proteins that are specialised to commit those cells to become, becoming one thing or another. And that process from stem cell to red blood cell is called differentiation. And the things kind of influencing that would be the sort of the hormones that like erythropoietin or GCSF? Is exactly. That... Well, those are good examples that you would see in clinical practice mm. that we can give exogenously that would weight the development of a particular type of cell. So I think one good example to explain this, going back to MDS, mm -hmm. of course. Um, of course. <laughs> so when patients are anemic with MDS, a proportion of patients will respond to erythropoietin injections. That's the hormone that is stimulated when we're not making enough red blood cells. So, for example, when we're in a road traffic accident and we were bleeding, one of our earliest responses would be to say, ah, okay, there aren't enough red blood cells here. We'd better make more of that hormone that makes red blood cells. So a patient who's anemic, you would expect to have a very high level in their bloodstream of erythropoietin because they're anemic. However, some patients with MDS have a not very high level of erythropoietin or in fact a normal or low level of erythropoietin. And those patients can respond to erythropoietin, although they tend to be quite insensitive. So you have to give very, very big doses. But some patients with MDS will not respond to erythropoietin. But if you give them GCSF as well, so GCSF is a growth factor that we conventionally think of as increasing our white blood cell count. Mm -hmm. But there is a progenitor cell, a cell that's somewhere between a stem cell and a red blood cell that gives rise to red blood cells and white blood cells. So in some patients, if you give GCSF and erythropoietin, they make more red cells. And that's because it's that cell that seems to require an extra stimulus in order to make red blood cells. They do also get increased white blood cells if you give them GCSF. In some certain situations, you need to give both to improve erythropoiesis. The bone marrow is kind of making similar amounts of the, the cells per day, but then if at times of stress, then certain types of production might ramp up. Yes, yeah, so I think that the situation is such that in normal conditions, it's very well tuned to produce the right type of cells. So, for example, you know, if you're in a road traffic accident, is a good one. You know, you produce more erythropoietin, you make as many red blood cells as you can. And you also make more platelets because your body needs to clot. So the stimulus there is, I've lost loads of blood. I need to make more blood. I need to make the things that are most important to me. The most important thing is making sure I've got enough oxygen and making sure that I can plug any clots. So normal hematopoiesis is designed to fix the gaps. I guess pregnancy is probably a, another good example. Okay. It's also a good example of where things go wrong. But in pregnancy, we often see lots of changes in hematopoiesis, which are largely due to the fact that you're providing for two and there's a great stress on the body. So there's a huge amount of increase in circulating blood volume. So we sometimes see patients looking anemic. They often are anemic, requiring extra iron. But often that's also an artefact of the fact that the circulating blood volume is very high. So you're making plenty of red cells. Yeah, it's, it's just, just more increase. Yeah. maturation 
Yeah. Is it anything more to to it than just actually the cell reaching the final point of its development after which it will remain in that form? Yeah. So that is exactly what it is. A, a mature cell is a cell that has completely differentiated to the point of its end. But when we're talking about looking at somebody's bone marrow, we often talk about something called maturation arrest. So in that setting, we'll see cells that have kind of started off normally and look completely normal and they just stop somewhere. And that's called maturation arrest. We sometimes see that in something like a myelodysplastic syndrome or myeloproliferative disorder where you would expect to see, you know, relatively normal looking hematopoiesis or at least all of the stages of differentiation. But we sometimes get cells that just kind of seem to stop at a certain point. Do you think there's a particular reason why it's more immature, rapidly dividing progenitor cells that lead to some of these diseases than the mature cells? So mature cells don't have a very long lifespan, perhaps with the exception of red blood cells. Red blood cells can survive for quite a long time in circulation. But white blood cells don't last very long at all. And, you you know, from a kind of everyday ward perspective, you'll know that because we don't give granulocytes very often. Mm. And when we do, we give them every day. We don't do a full blood count the next day and see that the neutrophil count has gone from 0.0 to 1.5. We get very excited if the neutrophil count's gone from 0.0 to 0.1. And that's because the white blood cells really don't survive very long. You know, 24 hours is a kind of good ballpark for a busy white blood cell doing its job. And so those cells don't have capacity really to, to, they're committed to die. They're programmed to do the thing that they're meant to do, which is fight the infection. They go, they find a bug, they spit out all of the things that kill the bud, and that's them, done. So the more primitive cells that have a longer lifespan are more likely to give rise to abnormalities. Typically, I guess, the the immature cells are staying in the bone marrow, and it was only when they Mm. mature that they might move into the peripheral blood or tissue. That's how it's meant to work. That's what one, one would expect to see in a normal patient. And when we start to see immature cells in the blood, that's a sort of red flag that something is going wrong. And in fact, I'm sure I've told you this story before. When I was a very junior doctor... Before I decided I was going to be a haematologist, I can remember a scenario on a general medical ward where somebody who was a haematology registrar rang me up and said, your lady in bed 27 has got circulating red blood cells in her blood film. We are coming to do a bone marrow and take this lady to our ward because there's something wrong with her blood. So you can actually see it down the microscope and it can be a first indication that there's a, something bad is going on in the bone marrow. And do we understand how the cells kind of stay in the bone marrow, which is obviously, I guess, very vascular? I don't think we do understand that. So, for example, there are certain types of T-cell leukaemia where we really don't see circulating leukaemia cells. We see lumpy disease and what we would kind of normally attribute to a sort of lymphoma type disease. So, for example, a big thymus and lymphadenopathy, but very little or nothing in the way of bone marrow disease. And those patients respond to treatment, that's exactly the same as patients who have T-lymphoblastic leukaemia in their bone marrow. But we don't know why those patients don't have circulating cells that are leukaemia cells. There's been some, some scientific work on that, about why they stay where they are and why they're resident. But it doesn't have any impact on how they're treated or what treatment they respond to. So we don't know whether that's important or not in terms of the pathology of the disease. Similarly, some patients present with leukaemia with a bone marrow that's absolutely wall-to-wall with leukaemia, but virtually no leukaemia cells in their blood. 
And some people present with a bone marrow that's got maybe 40% leukemia cells in it, but lots of them in their blood. And so we don't really know what the triggers are to make them go into the blood. We know that high white blood cell counts at presentation usually mean later stage disease, and they are often associated with a poorer prognosis. But we don't really know what the factors are other than time that lead to that situation. With the T-cell leukemia, would that replication be happening within like the lymph nodes, or would it be happening in the bone marrow and then the cells No, are, no, I think it's in situ, in the thymus and okay. in the lymph nodes. Okay. Yeah. So it's much more like a lymphoma, but they behave, you know, to all intents and purposes, they behave exactly the same as a T-lymphoblastic leukemia would that presented with a white count of 100. I think people have spent quite a long time trying to kind of define the things that make those two things different, but therapy-wise, there's no difference. So maybe one day there will be, maybe we'll get some targeted treatments that kind of refine those things, but at the moment they respond in the same way. When we give someone chemotherapy, mm. um, thinking about something like AML, there's that period of destruction of the myeloblasts at that point. Yeah. What most chemotherapy drugs do is they are targeting cells that divide rapidly. So one of the reasons we use in the regime flag, the G is GCSF, which seems a bit counterintuitive because mm. you've got a leukemia that expresses the receptor that GCSF stimulates. But the purpose of GCSF in that setting is to make sure all of the cells are cycling because most chemotherapy drugs only work if the cells are cycling. And you might remember from the very beginning, I said that normal stem cells aren't really cycling. They're mostly napping. So the idea is that you will preferentially kill those cycling cells, so those leukemia cells that are in cycle, and that what will come back is the normal cells, which by this time you've emptied your bone marrow, there's a normal stimulus to make more, and all of those committed cells that were busy making most of your hematopoiesis beforehand, be it abnormal or normal, those have all gone. So the only way to get normal hematopoiesis is for one of your non-cycling napping stem cells, if they're there, to divide. The counterside to that is that if you look very closely at leukemias, you can find a population of leukemias that behave very much like stem cells and they're referred to as leukemia stem cells. Okay. So those are the cells that we think are most likely to give rise to relapse or refractory disease because those cells too are mostly napping, they're not cycling, and so they're able to evade our conventional chemotherapy drugs because they're not targeted, because they're not cycling. Presumably that's, you know, just like a mutation that happened at that earliest point. I don't know that it's or... genetically encoded. It, okay. I think we probably know it's not genetically encoded. It's more likely to be a combination of the environment that that cell finds it's in, itself in when you've given chemotherapy. And some of those cells will always be out of cycle, will always. And... I'm not sure that we really know how to get to that cell or how to create an environment in which there is never a cell that's out of cycle. And that's really one of the reasons why we keep on giving chemotherapy over time. So for AML, we give usually three or four cycles of chemotherapy. Hmm. For ALL, we carry on treating them for years. And that's largely because eventually we hope that all of those cells will have come out of cycle and be treated with the drugs that we're giving. Because ultimately, we often refer to people being in remission after one cycle of chemotherapy, 
And that's because we can't see the disease by the naked eye. Everything that's there that we know is still there because we know almost everyone will relapse if we only give them one cycle of treatment yeah. is the stuff that's kind of minding its own business and hiding. We are much better now at being able to see that microscopic disease. We can detect it using very sensitive techniques in the laboratory. So we use a method called polymerase chain reaction, which basically amplifies up genetic abnormalities and allows us to, to monitor over time very low levels of relapse and be able to treat patients when they're at very early stages of relapse. So this is patients kind of after treatment after rather treatment. than sort of between courses. In Indeed. Although we do look between courses for some of the abnormalities. Yeah.